Well, you guys can grab a seat. Good evening. Merry Christmas. How are you guys doing? Good. You look good in your turtlenecks and stuff. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well for this little Christmas sermonette. If you have your Bible, we're just going to be going through one verse today. It's 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16. Like Jeff said, normally we do a 45-minute, hour-long exposition of a text, but this is Christmas, and you guys got things to do. So this is going to be more of a sermonette today. And uh, we're going to look at a song. It's actually a Christmas song in the New Testament. Maybe you didn't know that there are Christmas songs in the New Testament, but by this time, you've probably been inundated by Christmas songs. Whether you're at the mall or you're driving in your car or you're at home, it's just Christmas songs all the time. And there are good and bad Christmas songs, am I right? Yes, I would like to share with you my list of some bad and good Christmas songs, if I may. First, some bad ones. Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney. You know this song? It's not creative, the instruments are terrible, the words are terrible. He makes half a million dollars a year from that song though because it gets played all the time, but if that is your favorite Christmas song, you should get counseling. The next one, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. I hate that song. You might like it. You're not gonna agree with my list. My list is objective though, okay? And so this uh, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree, I think that one's pretty terrible. I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus by the Jackson Five. They have other good songs, but when I hear that song, I think, I think I'd just rather celebrate Hanukkah instead or something else. I don't enjoy that one. How about this one? Last Christmas by Wham. You know this one? That one's pretty bad, okay? I'm just not gonna comment on it. It just, it's bad. Blue Christmas by Elvis. And he does that kind of, I'm not gonna sing it. I know you want me to. Blue Christmas by Elvis. And then the Chipmunk song, Christmas Don't Be Late. Their voices are cute when it's a show, but when it's the song the entire time, it just makes me very much not in the Christmas spirit. But there are good Christmas songs. For example, my wife's favorite one is All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, because she's an excellent singer. The Christmas Song by Nat King Cole, the chestnuts roasting on an open fire song, that one's excellent. I'll Be Home for Christmas by Frank Sinatra. Anything from How the Grinch Stole Christmas, that's just nostalgic for me. Okay, anything. I don't know what they're saying as they're around the Christmas tree. They're making up a bunch of Dr. Seuss words, but it's amazing, okay? By the way, the guy that sings the You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, his name is Thurl Ravenscroft. That's the name of an actual human person. Sounds like he's a medieval executioner. And then uh, Carol of the Bells by Pentatonix, or really anything by Pentatonix. Now, those are bad songs and good songs, but here's what's interesting. Of every song I just mentioned, none of them are actually about Christ. They're all about Christmas, But Christmas doesn't exist without Christ. What they have is their their songs, they're catchy, but they don't necessarily have good theological content. They're not like what we're gonna see here today, which is more like a creed. You see, the best Christmas songs will not only have good melody and have a good rhythm, but they'll have good orthodox theology. Let me show you the words to one of the ones we just sang with uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by uh, Charles Wesley, the brother of the founder of Methodism, John Wesley. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, our God with us. Or this this part of the song, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king.
That is a song that's not just a song. It's not just a Christmas song. It's more like a creed. It has this theological language that he's the everlasting Lord, that he uh, becomes incarnate, that he's born of a virgin, all these kind of things. And that's what we're gonna see in our text today. This we know is a song because its meter and such in Greek is written like a song. But in 1 Timothy 3.16, we're given something that is both a song and a creed. It's not like Last Christmas by Wham. It's much more like Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. So we're gonna work through this phrase by phrase and then we will worship some more. Let's look at the first line within this verse. 1 Timothy 3.16, it says this. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Okay? That Greek verb translated as we confess is the idea of a creed. If you ever wondered what a creed means, the, the Latin word credo is, means I believe. It's this confession of faith. And there are some people that don't like creeds, which always blows my mind. I've heard people say, there's no creed but the Bible. And I think to myself three things when they say that. One, that's a creed. That, there's nothing in the Bible that says there's no creed but the Bible. Okay, so one, that's a creed. Two, there are creeds in the Bible. This is a creed and there are a bunch of these. These summaries of doctrine, these summaries of faith, they're in the Bible. And the third thing I think is this. God doesn't care if you have a high reverence for the Bible, but misinterpret it. Everyone will say they believe the Bible. False teachers will say that. False prophets will say that. Heretics will say that. Everyone will say they believe the Bible. That's not good enough. You have to say what you think the Bible actually says. You have to say what it means and what creeds do is they form like these bumpers when you're at the bowling alley that allows you to know where you can play. You can be anywhere here in the lane. You just can't go into the gutters. That's what a creed does and that's what we see here in this text, this idea of this thing that we confess. This is something Paul is quoting that would have been a common statement of doctrine within the early church. The reason it's called the mystery of godliness. Why is it called the mystery of godliness? Why didn't he just say, great indeed, we confess, is some doctrine? Because in Paul's mind, there's no such thing as separating your theology from godliness. To have bad theology, to believe wrong things about God is not to be godly. It's not to be holy. And what Paul is trying to do is not only say that, he's trying to link in these other elements that we don't have time to talk about in 1 Timothy today of how your theology and your morality go together that one, the morality flows from the other, your theology. So he's gonna give us this song, he's gonna give us this little creed, and we're gonna look at these lines here in just a second, but I wanna mention one thing. There is no theological consensus among scholars of what any of these lines mean. I'll give you an example. If you look down a little bit, it'll say that Christ was vindicated by the Spirit. Is that a reference to his baptism, when the Holy Spirit lights on him? Is that a reference to his resurrection? where he's declared to be the son of God, proclaimed to be the son of God from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit? Is that just the fact that he has come down from the heavenly realms? We don't really know. Paul is not trying to be overly precise. He's trying to walk through the life and ministry of Jesus. And so he's gonna use these generic terms. And so we are going to interpret those terms theologically and look at those. So a few things. First, let's look at this one here. This is why it's a Christmas song. Speaking of Christ, he was manifested in the flesh. This is why we celebrate Christmas, okay? Let me just be really clear. Christmas, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus is not the beginning of the Son of God. That is not the beginning of the second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal word, the Son of God has always existed. The Father is not older than the Son. The Father is not better than the Son. The Father is not more God than the Son. Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. So it's right to say that Jesus was born, that's okay to say, but as long as when you say that, you know that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word has always existed. 
He's always existed. He is not a creature. He does not come into being. He is the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the one who delivers Israel out of Egypt. That's who Christ is. But what happens at the incarnation, why we celebrate Christmas, is because that God, the second person of the Trinity, that person comes and he takes on a second nature. He is incarnated, which literally means made meat, which is kind of weird. He takes on humanity. He takes on humanity. So he, he, he doesn't lose any of his deity. He keeps what he's always had and he takes on a second nature. You are one person with one nature, humanity. Jesus is one person with two natures, that he is fully God and that he is fully man. And what we celebrate at Christmas is that that one who is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, while always being God, has now taken on a second nature and he has become a human so that we might be saved. And it's important that you emphasize both of these. There might be a tendency in your mind not really to hold to Jesus' full deity. You kind of think of him as like God Jr. or something like that. He's not. He's God. In relation to the Father, he is Son. In relation to God, he is of the same substance, okay? So he's fully and truly God. Equal worship, equal adoration is due to him as it is due to the Father, as it is due to the Spirit. But you might have a tendency to downplay his humanity, you might think that he's maybe not really that human. You know that song, Away in a Manger, where it says, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes? Well, there's an orthodox way of understanding that song, and it's just that he's being calm as a baby. But sometimes you have a tendency to think, he wasn't really a baby. He wasn't really a human. And that would be false. Trust me, I have two kids, and crying they make. To this day, when it's quiet in the house, I hear crying, even if nobody's crying, because I heard it for so many years when they were little, okay? Jesus doesn't just appear to be human. He is truly human. Whatever it means to be human, he takes that on because only God can save, so he must be God, and it's mankind that needs saving, so he must represent us truly as a man. Let me give you a great quote here from an early church leader. Cyril of Jerusalem says this, <clears throat> We believe that this only begotten Son of God came down from heaven to earth on account of our sins and took humanity of the same condition as ours and was born of the Holy Virgin and of the Holy Spirit and was made man, not in appearance or fantasy, but in truth. Neither did he pass through the Virgin as through a channel, but was truly made flesh of her and was truly nourished with her milk and did truly eat as we eat and truly did drink as we drink. Listen to this next part. For if the incarnation was a phantasm, so too is salvation a phantasm. The Christ was twofold, man and what was seen, but God and what was not seen. That Jesus truly became a man without ceasing to be God. And by that, that doesn't just mean he took on a human body. He's not Clark Kent who looks like us and then he throws on glasses and you can't really tell who he is for some reason. He's actually human. He doesn't just take on a human body because that would just save our bodies and there's more that is corrupt about us than just our bodies. He takes on a human soul. He takes on a human will. He takes on a human mind. Whatever he doesn't take on doesn't get saved. This is why the great Cappadocian father, Gregory of Nazianzus, says this about Christ. For that which he, Christ, has not assumed, meaning taken on, become, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. Listen to this, if only, if only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saved may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation or clothe the Savior only with bones and nerves and the portraiture of humanity. 
The first thing this is gonna say about Christ, this hymn, this Christmas song is, the son of God became man. That the son of God by taxes, that he is a different person than the father, became a son of man by incarnation so that the sons of men by nature might become sons of God by adoption. That's the idea. It goes on to say this. He was vindicated by the Spirit. You see this several times, okay? You see this in Jesus' ministry at his baptism where you get this glimpse of the Trinity. You have the Father speaking to the Son, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and you have the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove, though there's only one God. These are Jews. They are strong monotheists. Though there is one God, you see Father, Son, and Spirit at Jesus' baptism. But you also see him vindicated by the Spirit at his resurrection, Romans 1, 3 through 4, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection is the spirit screaming with a megaphone that Jesus is who he said he is. You see this in the case that the Spirit confirmed Jesus' miracles. Did Jesus do his miracles by his own power as God or by the power of the Spirit? And the answer is both. You see him do things like calm the wind and the waves or forgive people of their sin and they say, who can do that but God? But you also see the Holy Spirit in his ministry. He says that if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. That he has been vindicated by the Spirit. And also you see this with the ascension, which we'll see in just a second, that he's vindicated in a sense in the spiritual realm. The next one, seen by angels. Again, happens a bunch in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, angels herald him before he's even incarnated, right? Gabriel goes to Mary and he's like, hey Mary, you're gonna have a baby. And Mary's like, I don't know if you went to angel biology class or not, but I'm a virgin. How's that gonna happen? And he's like, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will take care of it, okay? So you see the angels there, but you also see angels in Jesus' ministry. When Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted, what he's doing is he's replaying the role of Israel and he's succeeding where they failed. So how long was Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament? Who knows? 40 years. How, How long did Jesus go out into the wilderness in his ministry? 40 days to replay the role of Israel. What was Israel tempted to do in the wilderness? They were tempted to trust the manna, the bread, and not trust God. That's why Jesus is tempted to turn those stones into bread. They're tempted to test God. That's why Jesus is tempted to test God and throw himself down from the temple. And they worship false things. They worship idols. They worship demons, which is why Jesus is tempted to worship the devil. But where Israel has failed, Jesus has succeeded at every point. And then the text says, after he's been faithful, that angels came and ministered to him, seen by angels. This is the case after the resurrection where people show up at the tomb and they're like, what happened to Jesus? And the angels are like, were you not listening this whole time? For the last three years, did you just, what were you doing? Were you on your iPhone? Pay attention, he's not here, he's risen. But you even see this further on with what the resurrection does. One of the things the Bible will say that the resurrection does is it shames and defeats God's enemies. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's a Jewish way, by the way, of talking about angels and demons. He disarmed the demons and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Next, this creed, this song says that he was proclaimed among the nations. This began with his disciples. In fact, it began before that. It began back with the prophets in the Old Testament. Then you have John the Baptist, who's this forerunner. And then you have Jesus. And then you have the disciples going out and healing people and casting out demons. And Christ's name is being proclaimed. But especially after his death and resurrection, 
beginning in the book of Acts from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the gospel is going out and his name is being proclaimed wherever there is lost people, which is everywhere. And that continues to this day. You are here today because of this hymn. You are here today hearing Christ proclaimed because that's what the church does, that we are broken, we are sinful, God demands perfection, and it is only found in Christ. There's a t-shirt I really like that says, Calvinist Santa, you're all on the naughty list. And I wanted to wear it for you tonight, but I figured I'd wear something with a collar since it was Christmas Eve. Believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. This happened in his earthly ministry when people would say things like, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, or they would believe in him. This happens after his resurrection when the gospel goes forward, that he's believed on in the world. And so the question I wanna ask you if you're here, especially celebrating Christmas, maybe you're a visitor, maybe you're a family member of a, a member here, or whatever it might be, have you believed upon Jesus? Have you called on him for salvation? Now let me be clear what I'm not asking. I'm not asking if you think you're a Christian. There's a lot of people that think they're Christians that are going to hell. I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer of salvation. I'm not asking if you walked an aisle at an altar call when you were six. I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you try to be a good person. None of those things will save you. Let me be very clear what I'm asking. Has Jesus rescued you? As this gospel is believed on in the world, has it been believed on by you? Have you put your faith in this Jesus? You cannot earn it, you cannot do it, you cannot get better. Has Jesus rescued you and is it evidenced by a transformation? Because the good news that is that as the gospel goes forward, you don't have to earn it, you don't have to clean yourself up, you don't have to be better, you get to submit, you get to bow the knee before King Jesus and he offers a full pardon for all your sins, past, present, and future, if you will but call him Lord, if you will but turn to him. I'll give you a little example. So when I was dating, the woman who's now my wife, her name is Katie, when we were dating before we got married, her family had this little uh, kind of ranch, this little cabin up in North Texas. And so we went up there with some friends and with some family members. And uh, her brother, who's now my brother-in-law, we decided that we were gonna play some airsoft, okay? We wanted to shoot each other because that's how men bond. And so we went out in the woods and we had our airsoft guns and about five seconds after this thing started, I stepped on a stick and the stick goes through my foot. I wasn't wearing boots, I was wearing tennis shoes. Through my shoe, into my foot, and I just fall down to the side and I'm like, Brian, help! And he's like, I'm not gonna help, this is a trap. This totally sounds like a trap. Help! And so he comes around the corner and I wasted him. I didn't do that. I was like, hey, I'm injured, can we time out? So we take off our mask and all that kind of stuff and I'm like, man, this, this stick is in my foot. And we're like, okay, let's try to pull it out. Ah, and that's not gonna work. So we take off the shoe and the shoe comes off with the stick still in my foot. The stick just pulls through the shoe. And he's like, oh man, we gotta get you back to the cabin. And I was like, yeah, I, I agree. I can't walk, okay? Now, Brian then does something very heroic. He picks me up. If you know Brian, he's about 7'3", but weighs about 65 pounds, but he's freakishly strong. And so he takes me and he throws me over his shoulder like I'm a cave woman, okay? And he's just walking and I'm like, who's this heroic fireman who's rescuing me? And we're walking and of course Katie's on the porch and I don't look cool at this moment because I'm being carried by a man over his shoulder. And so I'm like, oh, hey Katie, uh, this is no big deal, I'm not really hurt. So eventually we were able to pull the stick out of my foot and it was terrible. Now here's why I tell you that. This was not a cooperation between me and Brian. It was not that I put my arm around him and kind of hobbled. 
It was that all my weight was on him and he was doing all the work. That's what it means for you to believe on Jesus, that Jesus is doing all the work. He's doing all the caring. Your salvation is not a cooperative effort. It's not that God does 80%, but you gotta do your 20. There's not cooperative grace with this kind of thing. It's where you have to be picked up and carried because you're the one who's the problem. And my analogy breaks down because I was just injured. You weren't merely injured. I wasn't merely injured spiritually. The Bible says that we were spiritually dead, not just spiritually wounded, not spiritually injured, that we were spiritually dead. What do dead people do? Nothing. They just remain dead. That's all they do. He's believed on in the world. Look at this last little phrase here. Taken up in glory. This happened as an ascension where he rose up into heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And one day he is coming again. What this short hymn is meant to do is what Paul is doing is he's just summarizing these short Christian confessions about who Jesus is. And the reason we're going over this is because this is a Christmas creed about one who's come to us. The good news about Christmas is this, that you can't save yourself. Mankind doesn't reach up to God. God reaches down to mankind. God must condescend so that we might be saved. We don't exalt ourselves. We don't reach up to him. He must come down to us. That's what we celebrate with Christmas. So with that in mind, I can't think of a better way to end this short sermonette than by going over one of the most famous creeds of who Jesus is. We're gonna go over a section of the Chalcedonian Creed written in 451 called the Chalcedonian Definition. And it's one of the clearest and most accepted views worldwide among Christians of who Jesus is And I want to walk through it with us because it's a creed, like what we have here in Scripture, putting words to our belief. So let me read this to you and give some comments as we go. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, meaning we're not just making this up. We're not just bringing up and believing new things about Christ. We're holding on to what's been delivered to us, the gospel that's once for all been given to the saints. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. Notice he doesn't just become skin. He's not just God-wearing skin. He takes on everything that a human needs. Of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood like us in all respects, apart from sin. Notice that we're all born sinful today because we are born in the line of Adam, but sin is not natural to the human condition. Adam and Eve were fully human before they sinned. Jesus is fully human, though he did not have the stain of sin. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, mean eternally, he was never created. But yet, as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer. Now, let me pause on that because that freaks out Protestants like we are, okay? Let me explain what this means. When you hear in church history, Mary being called the God-bearer or Mary being called the mother of God, let me explain what that does and doesn't mean. That does not mean that Mary precedes the second person of the Trinity, okay? Jesus is the one who made Mary, What it's doing is this. There was this early church heretic, his name was Nestorius, and he said that Jesus wasn't one person with two natures, that he was two persons. That there was the divine son of God, and then there was just this guy, and they became united at some point through the will, not through actual incarnation. And so he would say that the baby in Mary's womb was just a man. 
And so the church is trying to say, no, 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 no. The baby in Mary's womb is God and man. Whatever baby's in Mary's womb is God and man. That is why she's called the Theotokos, the God-bearer, the mother of God. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that she, you know, like somehow gives Jesus his deity. She doesn't have any deity. To say it stronger, that phrase has nothing to do with Mary. She's just a human. It has to do with the baby in Mary's womb. Is that baby in her womb just a human? Or is it the one who is truly God and truly man? That's what the church means by using that phrase. One in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, that's the deity and the humanity, without confusion, they're not mixed. It's not like when you have a horse and you have a donkey and you get a mule, which is neither a horse nor a donkey. It's not like if you have yellow paint and blue paint and you mix them and get green paint, which is neither blue nor yellow, that the, mixture, the natures are not mixed. There's no confusion without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. Not as parted or separated into two persons. So just to summarize all this, if you're like, Zach, this feels like you're reading a dictionary. Let me just summarize it real quick. Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, fully God and fully man. But one in the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that mankind has rebelled against God, which is why the world is broken. This is why everybody's mad. This is why COVID exists. This is why people die. This is why there's cancer, etc. because mankind walked away from God and everything became cursed. But because God loves humans, though he shouldn't, he has sent down his son to become a human, to live the life that we should have lived, to take the death that we deserve to die, to be resurrected and to rule with all power and authority over all things, and one day he's coming again. Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us. Let's pray as we enter into a time of worship further in this season of Christmas. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit, and confess that you are great, that we need help. We thank you for just these few moments to reflect on the majesty of you sending Christ, the majesty, Christ, of your incarnation, and the majesty of you, Spirit, who's imparted these things into our hearts through faith. We love you and thank you. Would you bless this time? It's for your glory that we pray. Amen.